Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's insight assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. Hey, this is Scott Galloway, author, professor, entrepreneur, and most importantly, host of the Prop G podcast. We got a special series running on right now called The Future of Work, where I answer all your questions on, surprise, The Future of Work. Questions including, what are we missing when we work remotely? Or how do we handle work-life balance when a major opportunity comes knocking? From the provocative to the technical, we're offering insights you won't want to miss. So tune in to The Future of Work, a Prop G Pod special sponsored by Canva. You can find it on the Prop G Pod wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, welcome to the Long Form Podcast. I'm Max Linsky. I'm here with my co-hosts, Aaron Lammer and Evan Ratliff. Gentlemen, hello. It's a joy to see you both. Greetings, greetings, Max. Who do you have on the program? Aaron and I genuinely uninformed about this fact. The fact is, I talked to Roger Bennett, who uh, is probably best known as the host of Men in Blazers, which is a soccer podcast. It's also now a TV show, but he is also a writer, and he just wrote a memoir. It's called... Reborn in the USA, an Englishman's love letter to his chosen home. Roger is from Liverpool, and he grew up a uh, young Jewish boy in Liverpool, dreaming of America, wanting to be American, being obsessed with everything American, particularly sports. And he manifested his dreams. He moved to America, married an American. He's got American kids. And the book is about that whole process. He's, He's just wonderful to talk to, actually, like truly inspiring guy. He also, I should say, is hosting a podcast that comes out in a couple of weeks that is an anniversary podcast for Band of Brothers. And he interviewed all of those folks. And so we talked about that a little bit too. I'm glad you did this interview because if I had done this interview, basically all the questions would have been about teams and countries and how they play. And you probably got a little more into uh, what his actual career and background is. Maybe. I'm not sure that's totally true. <laughs> I think basically there's two ways this interview could go. We could ask one of the world's foremost experts on a sport about that sport or just ask him about his feelings for like 45 minutes. And then I chose the latter. That's our podcast, which is produced in partnership with Vox. Thanks to Vox. Check out all of the great shows that are on the uh, Vox network. And now here's Max with Roger Bennett. Roger Bennett, how are you, man? Oh, Max, it's a joy to be with you. It's a joy to have you. You are joy in human form, Max. <laughs> you know, all right, all right, hold it back for a second, because that is actually one of the questions that I have written down, and you're just beating me to it, which is, you seem so joyous. Are you actually this happy? <laughs> so funny. That is just you refracting back your greatness at me. I'm a terribly dark human being. 
I read Tessa the D'Urbervilles very early in my life, probably too early. And my English teacher used to shout at the front of class, used to say, happiness was but a fleeting emotion in Tessa's life. And I, I believe that deeply. Happiness ultimately is, you know, we, we're educated to believe it's constantly going to be part of our everyday life. Happiness is a wonderful emotion. Life is also dark, as we've all learned. Uh, so profoundly in the past 17 months. And I do believe in those fleeting moments of joy, if Tessa the D'Urberville's life arc is true, the important thing as a human being is to just celebrate it perpetually, never to take it for granted and dance as if you're at your own kid's wedding. And you're able to do that? How often are you dancing like you're at your own kid's wedding? Yeah, what's so funny is in the worst of the pandemic, and you probably don't want to hear this, I did find, you know, when we were all losing our minds, New York City, apartment life with four kids, I did find it incredibly soothing and incredibly releasing just to put on music that I hadn't heard in a long time from the 1980s and just dance with unbelievable abandon. So, uh, yeah, I did, I, if I have one superhero skill, which is deeply, deeply uh, an arguable point, I do think taking things for granted, avoiding doing that and actively making memories is probably the closest thing I do have to a spidey sense. Where does that come from? How do you figure out how to do that? You don't want to go there, Max. It's terribly, terribly dark. I, I, I think as a kid, I was always fascinated by the Holocaust. I was a voracious reader from a very early age, which has shaped me deeply and probably read far too many books at far too young an age that should have come later in life. Many of my friends fall into two categories, human beings who were super close to their grandparents, which is an amazing role in any family in life. And then a lot of my friends have found out after, oh God, yeah, you became obsessed about the Holocaust at like the age of nine or 10. Yeah, so did I. And your absolute best friends are the people who sit in the middle of that Venn diagram. I think that Venn diagram, that's such a, that's such a fantastically wonderful bedwetting Venn diagram. But the, the, that's the reality. I mean, there's been several times in my life where I've been profoundly impacted by history or society. And, um, and Max, I never talk about this, but for about a year and a half, around the age of nine, all I did was just read and read and read and wonder why. And when you move to the other side of that, you do learn to appreciate almost everything, not take anything for granted. And most importantly, use all the time you have. I believe that deeply. I've always believed that as a kid, just to try and fill my time actively, as we've seen so many times, even in sports, watching the Euros this summer, the football, where a pro in one of the first games, a 29-year-old elite footballer had a heart attack with the world watching on the field. You know, we all stared into the void. Life is fleeting. Never take anything for granted. It's there one minute, the next it's not. And that's how I approach life. There was something about that heart attack I was watching when it happened and it was so stunning and it felt in that moment like man how are they ever going to play any of these games ever again kind of well this team went on without him he was the great it would be like losing your quarterback he's Christian Eriksen he's, he's also a beautiful human being he's come on our show he's a joyous emotionally rich I mean, one of those players who just sees time and space differently. Um, so that it was him, this sweet, noble human being resounded. But we do, we watch sports. I shape my life around sports. I wrote my book because sports stopped in lockdown. And we go to sports. People go to sports for many reasons. You know, I go to sports to feel things like happiness, sadness, joy, defeat that most people 
experience in real life but i'm dead to inside but most people go to sports for a release and that was the amazing thing about that moment we were all there we were there for carnival we were there for a wedding Mm -hmm. and a funeral broke out almost i mean the medical officer actually said afterwards we lost him we lost him on the field we had to bring him back and in that moment we're watching we're laughing we love sports this is amazing and the truth of life suddenly screamed back at us stare into that void we are all going to die and that's not why we watch sports but i think we were all the better as human beings thank god he survived but because of that collective experience that we'll all never forget so you wrote the book in lockdown i wrote the book in lockdown By my accent, you can tell that I was not born in America. I do consider becoming an American the greatest achievement of my lifetime. I feel like as you say this, people should just know we're talking on Zoom and you have your hand over your heart, but also it's over the Waffle House logo on your sweatshirt. (laughs) Layers within layers of meaning. (laughs) that's so funny the i didn't even i wasn't even conscious that i was like you're pledging allegiance both to america and and to the waffle house one and the same thing to me (laughs) the uh, america is perpetually smothered and covered but i grew up in this post-industrial britain where the south rose and the north just was eviscerated by margaret thatcher and the steel mills which were once proud went silent i mean not without a fight it was a bloody two-year union again pitch battle all over the north of england miners fighting for their livelihood if you've seen billy elliot then you kind of get the drift of the bleakness in which i grew up liverpool was this port city which had no reason to be anymore because there was no product flowing through it and there was unemployment was soaring it was a heroin epidemic it was it was a black and white life and I, I grew up you know billy elliott ballet danced i didn't have those mad skills i instead just feasted on american culture american movies books tv shows music sports everything that just seemed to be dazzling life lived with courage and joy and hope in technicolor whereas mine was lived in black and white and i had painted on my wall i would write about this in the book the stars and stripes and a very it should be said deeply crude um version of the what a liverpool painter thinks is is the manhattan skyline actually having been to warsaw it looks just like bloody warsaw and i think he probably <laughs> he probably used the picture of warsaw it was like 1960s uh stalinist blocks but i thought they were manhattan which was all that mattered and to finally move to Manhattan as a grown-up is the achievement of my lifetime. And then back in that COVID, that late March, Max, that April, where life shut down, the world shut down. Manhattan was the center of the outbreak along with Seattle. Then there was it was fear, it was uncertainty. We didn't know then what we know now. And just everything was numbingly, it felt like human darkness. And... Um, sports the whole world of sports stopped and as i said earlier sports is how i make meaning sports is the narrative around which i build my life and when it stopped nature bores a vacuum and i think humanly max when you feel challenged in the present i think it's a fairly natural human instinct to go back and start mining the past and happy moments and so that's what I did almost as soon because I, I, as I said earlier, I love working, I love doing, I love, I can't stand being inactive. And so I threw myself really maniacally into the act of writing this, which was really trying to trace the contours of my perception of this love of America. So I, I set out to trace 
layer upon layer of where that love came from and how it came to be. What was it like? Cause listen, I was in New York in March and April too. And my experience of it was that anytime my kids stopped screaming or I got off Zoom, you could hear sirens. You know, it's the book is funny, like really funny. And a lot of it has kind of like... um kind of teen comedy vibe to it you know like they're just like the shenanigans you're getting into some bullshit and I just wonder what it was like to write something that at times is really lighthearted and really funny amidst that backdrop oh Max you're taking me back to a very dark time just hearing you you know think that poetic image of sirens I love the poet Philip Larkin and there's a poem he wrote ambulances where he wrote um when you hear an ambulance siren He's writing about England in his time, like the 50s. He says, poor man, they whisper at their own distress. When you hear a siren, you feel sorry for whoever's in it. But you're really thinking, again, oh, my God, we're all going to die. Mm-hmm. And you was just siren after siren after siren. I, I am very good at working in chaos. I was in an apartment. I have four kids. And it was proper bonkers. But so am I. And your point about humor is a really good one because it's a theme in the book. You know, I grew up in Liverpool. I went to a private school, Liverpool College, which was like a grey gardens of the British Empire. Just teachers who, most of them had gone to the college themselves in like the 1920s and have been tortured. But this is before education had discovered the concept of background checks. Basically, <laughs> I mean, these teachers were sadists, angry, dark human beings who believed we should be seen and not heard they were there to teach latin greek and ancient history and talk about the empire and if you disagreed you got the crap kicked out of you and it was you know the teachers beat the beat the shit out of us and it was quite funny all the american talk show hosts are like obsessed with how much we were beaten at school and i do remember like you'd come home bleeding and your mum wouldn't be like oh my god what, <laughs> what's what's happened to you what's happened said she'd just be like Oh, were you a naughty boy again, Roger? And, and it was just what, what passed as normal was quite horrific. But your point about humour really came through to me in writing the book. Liverpool people, per head, are completely overrepresented in the comedy uh, realm in England. You know, we are, and I, in, in the book, one of the characters says, you know, Liverpool people, we are dreamers. We look out to sea. We imagine a different life. We, we, we don't take life as it should be. We, we, we believe uh, there's many possibilities and we actively go out and grab them. And, and, and part all, of that comes out of like some darkness and bleakness, right? And that, that is it. So the storytelling and the comedy, where does that come from? When life is bleak, when life is crap, when you have nothing, you learn how to laugh. I mean, I, I, thinking back to it, I wrote this in the book. Everybody in my school was bloody funny. Every single human. I don't know if it's like that in your in your experience, Max. I think everybody's funny until life kicks the funniness out of you at a certain point. But in Liverpool, it stays bloody funny for a lot longer because it's all we have. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. As a parent, you want your child to have every opportunity. But giving them the tools they need to tackle every challenge, that takes a team. Now more than ever, educational support tailored exactly to what your child needs can make all the difference. 
That's why parents have trusted Sylvan Learning for 45 years as the ultimate teammate in their child's educational journey, instilling in them a love for learning and a passion for reaching the next level. And Sylvan's Insight Assessment can identify gaps in learning and areas that could be of concern for your child. It's a 360-degree view into your child's learning that you can't find anywhere else and helps ensure that your child didn't miss something in school that might put them at a disadvantage in the future. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. Hey, this is Scott Galloway, author, professor, entrepreneur, and most importantly, host of the Prop G podcast. We got a special series running on right now called The Future of Work, where I answer all your questions on, surprise, The Future of Work. Questions including, what are we missing when we work remotely? Or how do we handle work-life balance when a major opportunity comes knocking? From the provocative to the technical, we're offering insights you won't want to miss. So tune in to The Future of Work, a Pod special sponsored by Canva. You can find it on the Pod wherever you get your podcasts. What did you feel writing the book? I mean, part of what I was interested in to talk to you about is like, you know, you're like, you're like a 50-year-old man. I'm not like a 50-year-old man. You are exactly a 50-year-old man. Yeah. I'm actually like an 85-year-old man. <laughs> you have the spirit. You have the spirit of an 85-year-old man. By the clock, you're 50. But like, I guess I was interested in what you were trying to figure out by diving into that time in your life. So what was it like to write it? It was a fever dream. It was an absolute fever dream of of slightly, when I look back on it, and when I speak to my kids about what it was like to live with me, I didn't go out of the house for four and a half months. I just sat at the breakfast table in Manhattan as life was just imploding around me. Just if you've seen one of those movies in like the 1950s where there's a typing pool scene, right? You're just like, like <laughs> smacking the thing back. Yeah. And I did it not because I wanted to. It was like something absolutely and completely inside of me was compelling to do that. And psychologists who listen to your show, and I'm, I imagine there's a fair number, will be nodding and laughing. And will be, should I email Roger and tell him what happened to him in that four and a half month fever dream? You know what? Bless. I'm gonna. He seems like a nice person. I'm gonna let him be and i in writing it i felt emotions that i wanted to tap into which are you know my great grandfather as family myth has it was fleeing eastern europe he was a kosher butcher in the 1900s who's headed to chicago the the hog capital of the world and he made the fatal mistake of when the boat doctor refuel in liverpool pointing at the one tall building on the liverpool skyline and saying oh we're here we're in the promised <laughs> land we're in new york everyone off the boat and he flung himself into the north he stranded us stranded us so i i, I completed <laughs> my family's journey my grandfather who i was very close with you know was obsessed as a result when the life was dark in liverpool he'd take off the shelf 
over his fireplace this plastic tchotchke which I now have on my desk a terribly cheap Statue of Liberty and he'd solemnly look at it and say to me Dodge we should have lived there we should have <laughs> lived there and so America I always felt like in the darkness of my life and this is very common for young people adolescents that like you always imagine if your life is dark and every adolescent has dark moments you imagine I'll turn you it's fascinating how many American readers have reached out to me and be like oh my god you obsessed about alterna rog living in chicago in the northern suburbs i grew up in la i loved the smiths and i dreamt of living in salford outside of manchester with morrissey <laughs> i'm like oh my god did you ever dodge a bullet but that's what i wanted to tap back into as america was falling apart outside of my apartment walls i wanted to tap back into how this deep love i'd organized my life around it i'd moved here as an illegal immigrant i had become american it took me a long bloody time i i married an american i have four american kids where did that love come from what does it mean was i misguided those are the feelings that i experienced in that maniacal fever dream did you figure things out in that time or was the process of writing it like just getting it all out there like did you know where you were going or were you just like was the fever that you never stopped. I didn't know what I was doing, listeners, <laughs> uh, which is a situation I always love in life when you don't know what you're doing. That's a great feeling for me. I genuinely adore that and revel in that. Is that something you kind of chase? No, it just happens to me a lot. I always joke with my wife that like life is constantly trying to throw me out of a high-speed car and I always hold on really, really tight to the bumper. <laughs> so I don't chase it. It just kind of happens. And so I've made a lot of documentary films and so I scripted it like a documentary film on a, a, script, a scripting board. So I was quite orderly. But then the year got worse and worse and worse as I was writing. And so Men in Blazers, even though sports had stopped, we actually stepped up our output. We have a very active, deeply connected audience. And I wanted to be with them in this dark moment. So I had that going in the morning. I wrote the book largely from two o'clock till God knows what time. And it was the Black Lives Matter uh, summer then unspooled. The agony, the trauma of that experience right into the toxicity of the 2020 election. And I did turn to my wife at a certain point and be like, oh my God, what have I done? What have I done? I've written a love letter to America and there's a good chance going into the election that the only place it's going to want to hear about a love of America by the time the book comes out is I'm going to be on OANN network and right, Newsmax. Right, right. I'm yeah, going it's to, like, like you thought you were writing a love letter and there was some odds that it was going to be like an obituary. I wouldn't say that, but it did feel at times as if I was at the end of the Planet of the Apes um, and I was Charlton Heston. <laughs> and it was... A, and so, so you asked me, did I plot out everything? I plot out the my narrative and then the epilogue, which I actually put out as a standalone podcast for your listeners who want to, want to hear that. That uh, I wrote and rewrote and rewrote as the year unspooled and tonally try to reflect you know my book is about the american idea and i've always been inspired even as a kid i was inspired by the langston hughes line oh let america be america again the land that never has been yet and yet must be like that that captures so powerfully the difference between the american idea which i've shaped my life around and the american reality which is as we as we experience as i wrote the book just in the state that we all know it is and i do believe 
by becoming American and actually as a, a right in the epilogue voting for the first time, which was so deeply moving and so deeply powerful. Like I commit to closing that gap with all my might between the American idea and the American reality. But that final epilogue of the book was just a constant moving, emotionally fraught. Uh, it was one of the hardest mountains that I've ever tried to climb. And I'm not a very good mountain climber, Max. <laughs> was part of the challenge that you knew there was going to be some lag time between when you finished it and when people would read it? Yeah, there's a moment. I mean, you know, books, books, you finish them and then they come out about seven years later. It's still, you know, Guggenheim invented the printing press in about 1450 and it's kind of come on a little bit since then, the industry, but not so much. <laughs> so so I kept working and reworking it. By the way, I should say, I had an editor who is just an unbelievable partner in this, Carrie Thornton um, at Day Street. And there was a moment where Carrie's like, the work is done. Like, stop, stop chiseling away at the bloody sculpture. Put your bloody chisel down. And that was it. So either in the realm of the big idea or in the sort of like particulars of your youth and the way you understood your family and your place in it, were the things that you were surprised by? Or did you sort of know where all the bodies were buried? Yeah, I uncovered a lot. I think that was retrospectively, because you do have a lot of time after you finish your book to reflect on what the hell you've just created, even as you hold your breath, because you, of course, have no idea how it's going to be received. Essentially, you've just spent an agonizing period of time trying to create a masterpiece on the side of a grain of rice. Like, who's going to be bothered about that at the end of the day? And so you worry, how is it going to be received? And you also reflect on the process you've been through, or at least I did, and I was surprised. I say, I, I, you know, I've always thought I was quite a dark person. And the book, I think, is unbelievably optimistic and joyous. It um, is. And I Sorry think... to interrupt you, but I've, I read a bunch of interviews that you did about the book before we talked. And in the interviews, you keep talking about how dark Liverpool was. But that's like not really in the book. Or I mean, <laughs> it is, but it's like it's all subtext. You know what I mean? Like, it just felt like there was some gap there to me. You know, like, the book is optimistic. I believe that out of darkness cometh light. That's a very profound statement that I've stolen from a Premier League football club. It's their motto. I made a film about them and I was desperate for them to tell me that motto was actually, you know, Austin or Shakespeare. And they're like, no, nope, we made it here at the club. I was like, oh, <laughs> but it's, I do believe out of darkness. I mean, you have to fight. You have to fight for that light. I mean, ultimately, to me, that's the human condition. When I cover sports, whatever the sport is, I've been blessed to cover so many different sports. Um, you know, we have a lot of NHL, uh, NFL stars who come on the show, Aaron Rodgers, JJ Watt, uh, DeAndre Hopkins, you know, a ton of the NBA players. And the ones I'm always drawn to, I realize players like um, Alex Caruso for the Lakers, who was just discarded, disregarded, was on the on the brink of going to Poland or Germany and instead ground his way ground his way to become a world champion with the Los Angeles Lakers and I adore Caruso I adore him as a human being I adore him as a as an athlete I adore his life narrative and I try and tell stories in sports that transcend sports sports is best when when sports transcend sports mm -hmm. and, and the most common theme that's so common that my production partner Jonathan Williamson He's always like, you've got to be careful how many times you use the word, but I can't use it enough. I use it all. Tenacity. Tenacity. To me, so much of my work is about human tenacity, that value of perseverance, of driving onwards, of grinding your web. But again, I believe life is about darkness and happiness. 
I believe that nothing is given, everything you fight for and how you operate in moments of doubt and darkness ultimately define you. So I talk a lot as a professional about tenacity. What I've never linked that to before was my own biography. And I do, I'll be honest with you, because uh, you're asking questions that I never get asked. And so I never talk about this. And I said to you before the show, I, before I did this book, I actually hate talking about myself as a Jewish guy and an English guy. I'm filled with a double dose of self-loathing. But what did surprise me when I read the book as not being about me, but just read it as a book was how bloody tenacious I was in, in fleeting moments of real awfulness. <laughs> yeah, you made this shit happen, man. <laughs> like pretty relentlessly made this shit happen. Can I ask you a question which maybe is uh, too philosophical and or doesn't make any sense, but can you articulate the connective tissue between tenacity and optimism? I think um, tenacity is the process and optimism is the motivator or I can only speak for myself like ultimately and again I've always thought about myself as a truly dark person I come from a fairly dark place Liverpool all the sports teams I root for all of them uh, you know Chicago Bears the uh, Everton Football Club it's the greatest achievement of my life to make all my kids Everton fans it's a Premier League team and Chicago Bears fans in the NFL. My wife's like, why would you work so hard for that? Why would you do it's such a miserable thing you've done to them? And ultimately, I do love that feeling of every year, this is going to be our year, building a case for hope. And I think sports gives you that muscle to constantly reload with hope, even though all evidence points to the opposite. And I've just taught my 15-year-old to Chicago. I got invited to throw out the first pitch at the Chicago White Sox. And it was beautiful. It was deeply meaningful. It was like proof to me that we're all on the conveyor belt of life. I first went to the White Sox as a 15-year-old kid and fell in love with baseball as chess with chewing tobacco. And then to be there with my own oldest in this moment, it was like, again, a reminder that we're all shuffling along the conveyor belt of life. But I didn't know what to do with the winning. The Chicago White Sox are so bloody good this season that I was like, don't take away my losing, man. <laughs> to tenacity is the process. And I think for me, I've realized that as someone who thinks about themselves as very dark, bizarrely, optimism is is a, a being thrown out of that car. I don't know if it's optimism or is it just steely determination? It's one or the other, but they're the drivers. I didn't realize you just threw out the first pitch of the White Sox game. It was... Um, what the fuck would young Raj think of that? I thought a lot about that, actually, about what young Raj would think about. I mean, young Raj, I went to Comiskey Park. I was completely enraptured. It was the first baseball game. I went to the Cubs two days later, but I was already completely committed and in love uh, <laughs> with, with Harold Baines. And I, can't, I don't know what young Raj would have thought. I don't think young Raj... I didn't... Like, in Liverpool... And you low-level lawyers, and you low-level doctors, and you low-level like insurance people, and you, you know, the occasional dentist. We didn't know, you know, artists, or it wasn't like there was television presenters just walking around. Or right. there's one guy I forget his name who you mentioned who is like a, a Liverpool College alum, yeah, who's held up as like you could make it and be like this guy, but no one ever really will. Well, there was two. Simon Rattle, the famous conductor, went to Liverpool College. The truth is he went there for about, I think, eight months and then realised <laughs> it was terrible and, and went somewhere else to prevent his genius. Got the, got the shit beat out of him and left. And then there was, yeah, then there was um, there was this guy who was a television sports correspondent who was in the book, what happens to him. I did find great pleasure. Somebody sent me the, on Wikipedia, there's some list of famous old Liverpool College, old Lapulians, and I I am on the list now. Roger Bennett, 
writer, whatever. And underneath me, I don't remember the guy's name, but the person underneath me in the most famous ever Liverpool College people is now making this name up. His name is John Burblebury, murderer. <laughs> no, come on. <laughs> come on. <laughs> well, you know, we all have very, very high achievement uh, educational philosophy. Just, light, just, just different the, kinds of life achievement. Light, light and dark right next to each other all the time. That's the, that's the Liverpool way. Murderer. Fox Creative. This is advertiser content from 26.2 Team Milk and their new docu-series, Running Sucks. Is running the worst? Yeah. Do you love it? Do you hate it? I hate it so much. <laughs> I hate it so freaking much. That you're a real runner now! I hate it. <laughs> I'm Abby Ayers, a 37-year-old mom from Utah who found herself running across the Manhattan Bridge in my first race ever. Running Sucks celebrates women who run and the running communities that carry them across the finish line. Running helped me in so many ways postpartum. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. For every person like you, I'm telling you, you belong, and I'm telling you, you can do it. I never thought the words would leave my mouth, but yes, I'm planning on running a marathon. (laughs) I can't even say it without laughing, because, like, who would have thought? Watch Running Sucks at runningsuckstheseries.com and learn more about how Team Milk is helping women runners across the country conquer their next course. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, what are you going to do with the rest of your life? Oh, this podcast is like um, the most open-ended, random crap. Um, <laughs> no, no, that, that, that came out, that was endearing. I'm like just trying to fend and play for time as I work out exactly how to answer that. Well, like here's, here's where that question comes from. So you've written this book. You started the podcast. The podcast went, I have to imagine, so far above and beyond what your expectations could have been. It turns into a TV show. You're doing stuff on the NHL. You're doing stuff on baseball. You're making documentaries. Doing the official 20th anniversary Band of Brothers podcast for HBO, which is just genuinely, genuinely the honor of a lifetime. Right. And also doing like the Succession podcast and also like a music label where you're like saving (laughs) old music. And like there's just so much stuff. And from the outside it looks like you're sort of like doing it all all the time and i guess i'm interested in how do you think about these choices that you make and do you expect that they might change i'm quite an impatient person so like when other human beings play golf 
I love golf. I love interviewing golfers. I love covering golf. But like, put a golf club in my hands and I just turn into a psycho. Like, I have no patience. I've got that wrong mentality to play golf. So there's like things that other people do to to fill their lives. I don't have those muscles. What I do have are passions. When I look at uh, the rather eclectic pathway that I have uh, forged, I wouldn't say blazed, it would be whatever the opposite of blazed is. All of it is just by, I've always been fascinated by things and passionate about things. That's where authenticity comes from, I guess. And I, I do love to chase my passions in every regard. So like Band of Brothers, I am obsessed with that television show. I think it's an incredible phenomenon of a show that captured with true wonder the narrative of American contribution to the Second World War. And I yeah, became particularly obsessed. But as soon as we were in lockdown too, I... Um, I wanted to show my kids the America that I grew up revering. Just a every, casual, everyday heroism, self-sacrifice, global leadership. So given the opportunity, um, I just jumped into, I mean, seized that opportunity. It's just an honor to me to be able to make that show. And so pretty well everything I do, that's the threshold. Do I feel passionate about that? You know, the NHL, do I feel, I feel deeply passionate about the NHL. I adore it. I'm actually wearing a Capitals hat as we podcast it's like premier league football i grew up with turned up to 11 um and i you know i'd watched uh, the athletes and i think they're fascinating we'd had a couple on our show ovechkin comes on our show and i'm fascinated these people have deep human stories to tell but they don't get the chance to tell them because they're always just asked about how you doing on the blue line how do you feel you're going to grind today <laughs> and i'm like uh, so i jumped to the opportunity to work with the elite athletes in the nhl to tell their stories as human stories that transcend sport so that's the long answer the short answer is i think i'll do anything that i really enjoy i have a production partner um who i really adore working with jonathan williamson who's a genius so i do anything that's the threshold passionate about them uh where i feel i can make a difference and where i can work with people i really love when those are the conditions those are the three conditions I'll do, I please God, I hope to keep doing that. And everyone's like, you do so many weird things. It's like one minute you're doing Premier League football, the next you're doing the Succession podcast, the next you're doing like, what are you doing, mm-hmm. NHL stuff now? And now you're doing Band of Brothers. Ultimately, every project I do is just about, and the book fits in there, I hope, about just humanity. And tenacity. All of those examples are about tenacity. Yeah, I guess all of the work. I mean, all the there are so many of the NHL stories are stories of human tenacity. I love it when a player just had you know number one draft pick who just failed completely and was kicked out of the game. I love it when the player tells me that you know Pat Maroon, who was a lovely kid from St. Louis, Fat Pat, the kids called him, and he he found solace in roller hockey made it to the NHL, but you know, drank and party too much and was out of the game within a year, found himself on a couch in college in New Jersey. He'd had a kid and he was training with some college team, not even the college team, but the club team at the college. And he had a moment where he said to himself, what am I going to do? My kid, I can't see my kid see me on the couch like this. I've got to pull it together for the kid. 
and he ground his way. It took him three or four years, five years to get back into the NHL. And he's always banged around. He's always he's the Alex Caruso. You know, he's always a player that makes other players look better. But he's now won back to back to back Stanley Cups. To me, it's like the Ark of the Covenant. If you own Pat Maroon's contract, you will be guaranteed victory. And and, and that's the story. That's the story that yeah. you know that I love to. He sacrificed a lot along the way, by the way. But that's that is the Pat Maroon's my favorite hockey player. Alex Caruso is my favorite uh, NBA player. I guess you're right. It is all the same stuff. It's a beautiful thing that you can see that in your own book too, man. I wouldn't dare call myself the Alex Caruso of writing. That I aspire to. We all should aspire in life to be the Alex Caruso of the written word. You could be the Alex Caruso of like American obsessed kids in Liverpool in the 80s. Yeah, and I'd like to be the LeBron of American obsessed kids in the 80s, if you don't mind. I'm going to take that. I am the LeBron of English kids who are obsessed in Liverpool uh, with America in the 1980s. And in that regard... Yeah, I said earlier that when you do and you have loads of writers on, and I'm sure many of them say the same thing, you, there's that awful lag, that like 10 months lag when you finish the book and you're waiting, waiting, waiting. And it has been, I've got to say, so bloody humbling just the way it's been received across America by Americans, by the audience that it's found. It's been, um, I mean, this project feels different than anything I've done. It's so bloody personal. I've definitely made myself incredibly <laughs> vulnerable in the book and just personally vulnerable but also to speak to america at this time about a love of america you hold your breath uh when you do it and the response to it has been so profoundly deeply humbling um the lebron of american <laughs> obsessed kids in liverpool in the 1980s that i'd love i'd love that on my gravestone max there you go there you go have your kids read the book so I read a lot. It's the joy of my life. My wife reads a lot. We have four kids and they are not readers. Actually, my two youngest are readers. That's not fair. But my two oldest ones for whom this book is most relevant are not big readers. Not big readers at all. Um, And I think it's probably quite common for... I mean, the attention span, the TikTok attention span is just give me 15 second hits. Give me 15 second hits. It makes for fascinating mental patterns and very humorous kids and very creative kids it doesn't make for always or in my case and it's shocking to me it really is like i i I have a my grandfather who i was very close with was called sam he loved reading when i had my first kid i named him samson so that he didn't feel like he had to be the same person but had permission to be different and my god he's so bloody different he's like six foot four he's um enormous and I do believe, I believe in like letting my kids be very different. Let, you know, my whole life has been about following my path. As I said earlier, so many, you know, thousands of people have talked to me about, you know, in LA, I loved and that, that story. I wished I'd grown up in Manchester. It's very common for people to feel what I felt, that they could be happier in other places, funnier, wear better clothes, be more popular, have more people laugh at their jokes. The one thing that was singular about me is I actually acted upon that dream and made it my life goal. Um, and when you've done that, you know, the, the last words of the book, uh, I wrote to my kids, I said, this is my life story. I hope you feel permission to write your own and I mean that absolutely. And the shocking thing is Samson actually did bloody read this book. I think Samson, who will not be listening to this podcast, I think he's read one book. He read The Catcher in the Rye and The Great Duress um, in high school. And he read my bloody book. 
And I will say as a parent, that is one of the most meaningful things. I found it deeply meaningful. And he's smart enough. He wrote into Google Doc. He wrote comments along the way. He's smart enough to like to show me he's read the book. This bit's funny, Dad. This bit's cool. <laughs> I mean, it must be quite awkward AF for them to have read, have read the book. But I wanted them to know that becoming an American in that courtroom with 162 other newly minted Americans from 42 different countries who've struggled. I mean, my struggle is hilarious in comparison to the company in which I became American and the tip of southern tip of Manhattan in a court, you know, people who would escape civil war and conflict and famine and and worse. I wanted them to know that there's not a single morning I wake up and take for granted being here, take for granted being married to their mum and hearing their accents at the breakfast table every bloody morning hey dad i can't even do an american accent max still uh it just cracks out. i wanted them to know that i never take it for granted and i hope they never do either well it sounds like you've been practicing not taking things for granted for a long time yeah and i honestly didn't know until i wrote this bloody thing and i think that's a takeaway for a lot of people if you are born here in this country i think it's a natural proclivity to not feel that and I do, um, I really do. Roger, thank you. Max, you're a beautiful human being. Thank you for having me on. Thanks for listening to Longform. I'm Max Linsky. My co-hosts are Aaron Lammer and Evan Ratliff. Our editor this week was Gabriella Saldivia. Our intern was Julianne Sato-Parker. Thanks to them. Thanks to our friends at Vox and our friends at MailChimp. And thanks so much to Roger Bennett for coming on the show and uh, and bearing with me. His book is called Reborn in the USA. Go check it out. We'll see you next week. Hey, this is Scott Galloway, author, professor, entrepreneur, and most importantly, host of the Prop G podcast. We got a special series running on right now called The Future of Work, where I answer all your questions on, surprise, The Future of Work. Questions including, what are we missing when we work remotely? Or how do we handle work-life balance when a major opportunity comes knocking? From the provocative to the technical, we're offering insights you won't want to miss. So tune in to The Future of Work, a PropGPod special sponsored by Canva. You can find it on the PropGPod wherever you get your podcasts.